right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. We have, uh, for the second time in No Laying Up podcast history, the CEO of the USGA uh, on the podcast. Also, for the fourth time, I believe, we have uh, Mike Wan coming on the podcast. But the first time, a combination of those two, uh, the new CEO, of course, of the USGA is Mike Wan. I just kind of throw every possible question I could think of at him. Uh, he answers everyone like you would expect Mike Wan would answer. Just was super appreciative of him coming on, sharing some insights, you know, very early on in the job. And it'll be fun to kind of check back in periodically with him as we go through uh, his tenure as the uh, CEO of the USGA. So uh, No Laying Up is, of course, brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. Everyone needs a rangefinder. I cannot endorse this product highly enough. It is extremely affordable rangefinder. We use the NX9 Slope for Precision Pro Golf. Uh, it does everything you could possibly want in a rangefinder. You can gun flags with it. You can do hills, bunkers, You know where your runouts are going to be going. Right now, our listeners can add the NX9 slope to their golf bag for $25 off. Use coupon code NOLAYINGUP, all one word, at checkout for $25 off the NX9 slope. It's got slope-adjusted distances. It's got the built-in magnetic cart mount, six times magnification. It's got a crystal-clear display, and it offers hands-down the best customer service and care of any rangefinder in the industry. Plus, it's the only rangefinder that's going to give you free lifetime battery replacements. If you have any issues ever with your with your rangefinder, you can call them. They're going to get you taken care of. We've gotten so many messages about how tremendous their customer care has been. Again, everyone needs a rangefinder. You don't want to be the guy that is asking, you know, your playing partners to gun your yardage for you. Get it yourself at precisionprogolf.com. Use coupon code NOLANGUP, all one word, at checkout for $25 off our favorite rangefinder, the NX9 Slope. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Here's Mike Wan. All right, so last time you were on, you were downplaying the possibility that you might be taking the USGA job. How can we take anything you say today seriously? <laughs> well, I don't know if you believe me, but it was true. <laughs> I was... Um... Uh, I was. I had told my wife we were going to take 2021 off. So the somewhere there's a book of the list of promises broken to Meg Wan. But uh, I had sort of said let's just take 2021 off. We have a house in Reynolds in Georgia. We were going to kind of spend some lake time and you know. And then I talked to Stu Francis at the USGA. And as soon as I got off the phone, she you know she knew I was talking to somebody about a job and said who was that? And I said <laughs> well the, the lake plan might have to take a backseat. So yeah, I mean just like you, I mean when I thought of Mike Wan and USGA, I didn't see the natural fit in the first conversation. So. I think I was no different than a lot of other people that said, yeah, I know he's available and I know they're looking for a CEO, but that probably doesn't work. And that's probably how I started the conversations too. Well, I want to get into some of that first, but a couple of just kind of background questions that I think will help dictate a lot of our conversation today. But what would you say is the purpose of the USGA? And I don't know if this is different as well, but as well, the mission of the USGA. I don't know if you consider those to be the same thing, but I'm curious your answer to that. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, so listen, I just started, so I'm doing a lot of time on the history of both the USGA and golf in America. And, you know, at, in the beginning, you know, 1894, um, you know, five clubs came together to, uh, to form the USGA to do really three things. You know, they wanted, to, um, they wanted to create national championships that all golf courses would buy into as the national championship. Back then, courses were holding championships and saying, here's the U.S. amateur winner of, of, this, of, of 1893. And another course down the road would hold the same one and claim the same thing. 
Um, there was dis there was discrepancies between the rules that different clubs would follow. They really formed the USJ to say, let's create national championships, the whole that the USA can buy into. Let's create a governing body that can really govern the sport, especially as it relates to rules and regulations uh, within the sport. And let's create an entity by which that uh, that wakes up every day thinking about the future of the game. Because if you're running the golf course, if you're running a tour, if you're running a membership program, and because I've done a lot of those things, your first thought when you wake up in the morning is generally about those members and their vocation and those opportunities. At the USGA, I've said this to you know to my EC board here many times, and I drive into work thinking about what's golf going to look like 50 or 100 years from now. Uh, I wish I could tell you I did that as the LPGA commissioner, but but I didn't. I got around to the future of the game, but it was only after I fixed the current day of the game. And um, at the USGA, we don't spend as much time on the current day. We spend a lot more time asking, will our kids' kids have a better opportunity through this game uh, than we did? And if the answer is no, that's on us because nobody else is waking up thinking about that. Yeah, I definitely want to want to dive into that uh, as well. But also, I, I got to admit, I, I'm a little confused how the uh, organizational chart works at the USGA. What What is your job? How would you answer that question? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the chief executive officer inside you know, the building of the USGA. Um, and like most CEOs, my job is to never be the smartest person in the room. Um, and I think most CEOs get that. I've met a few that don't. And, you know, your job is to put the most talented people you can in the different uh, in the different functions and then get that group working together under a common goal. So I have a lot of direct reports. I think I have 10 direct reports. That's probably twice as many as I'm capable of handling. So figuring out how to organize the, the structure of the organization will be will be one. Also, I think when you get that many direct reports or that many departments, you start getting more silos and even inside the building you don't find the working together as natural when you when you put businesses and departments together the whole synergy thing happens without you having to do anything so um you know you've sort of seen that in some of my early moves you know taking sales and marketing putting them together and a chief commercial officer make sure that those folks are working on the same you know on the same and you'll see more of that i think in the future is it safe to to categorize that is you know if if it was one of these two things you are a a organization manager or you know the executive of that organization or you are the chief decision maker of the USGA if you were categorizing it one of those two things which one would you categorize it as I think people struggled with the term commissioner when I was at the LPGA I'd be on a plane I'd say I'm commissioner they'll go what does that mean commissioner and I'd usually say think of it as the CEO of the LPGA and they go oh got it so it's it's funny when you say you're the CEO of the USGA Generally, people understand what that means. And, uh, you know, so my job is to not only lead the organization and make sure, you know, get the right talent, the right, the right objectives and quite frankly, hold us accountable to what we say we were going to do, but also manage, a, you know, manage a board of directors, in this case, a 15 member executive council to make sure that we're utilizing their, their strengths and independent skills and guiding us to a, to a finished product. I mean, it's obviously... I'm taking over a business that started in 1894. So I feel the responsibility to not only go back and understand why they originally formed the USGA, but how we could make the people who formed it in 1894 more proud of, I've said this many times at the LPGA, I not only wanted to think like a founder of the LPGA, but every day I thought we had a responsibility to make the founders proud because we could even think bigger than they could when they got together 70 years ago. I feel the same way here. There was a vision that brought the USGA together. I have a responsibility to deliver that vision. And at the same time, I think when you wake up in 2021, you have a clear responsibility to make those those people that came together that had the vision realize that the vision could be and is much more than that. And and obviously the game both is and could be much more than what we thought in 1894. And I feel the responsibility to make sure that in in, in 2054, they're talking about some of the things we put in place in 2022. 
So what was your interview like? I get the sense that, you know, there's likely to be some disruption. There already has been uh, with someone like yourself coming in from the outside. Did you lay out a plan for the future? And that's what they were buying into. Who is even in charge of hiring you? I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, so we have a 15 person uh, executive committee board. Um, I'll be honest with you. I used to come and present to the USGA at their annual meeting every year, probably for the first six years of my tenure at the LPGA. I'd give an update on the state of women's golf, things we were doing together. We have a few programs that we run together with the USGA and the LPGA. Uh, and then they kind of stopped having that be part of their annual meeting, which which actually didn't bother me because I'd, I'd fly in for 30 minutes and fly out. And a lot of times they weren't anywhere close to where I was located. But my take on the executive committee or the board of the LPGA was very much a um, an old golf guys kind of club. I'm not sure if that's true, but that was my take. And you know, I didn't spend a lot of time with them, but I remember thinking, you know, these are these are impressive members of impressive clubs from all over the, you know, from all over the U.S. kind of coming together. And when they're done, they hand it to one of their buddies. And so I walked into 2020. I think it was December 2020. It was at the U.S. Women's Open when I met the, the selection committee, which is about half of the board. Um, and I remember thinking instantly walking in, this looks and feels like the LPGA board. And what I mean by that is diverse, real successful business people, some of which were steeped in golf and some of which, quite frankly, had very little golf connection, very much run like a board. I mean, a group that was looking for a CEO that would lead them, not they would lead him or her. And my, my impression of the executive committee before that was much more of they were running the USGA and they had a team of people back in you know Far Hills, New Jersey that were executing those plans. And so given that that was my vision one i'm not an old golf guy from a great old club and you know i don't i don't fit in that in that bloodline and two is i'm you know i'm not going to do well in an environment where you tell me exactly what you want to achieve and then i'll just go achieve it i mean there's people that are really good at that i'm not one of them so i kind of walked in with that impression and walked out thinking this it, it felt very much uh, like an lpga board discussion we were talking about bigger issues i was I was arguing with them. We were disagreeing. And, um, you know, if you know me, um, not, nobody enjoys an argument more than I do, just for the sake of, you know, getting all the ideas on the table. And I was amazed how much they were engaging and enjoying debate because, you know, they would say, well, we think, and I'd say, well, I think you're wrong. And then we'd go from there. And generally, my impression was the USGA wouldn't, wouldn't want that or enjoy that. But I was both surprised and, you know, if, if you know me, enthused, because if, you know, if I, if I find those kind of environments, that's where I think good things happen, where you're sort of over yourself, you're focused on real world issues, and um, you're willing to debate about it as long as it takes. Yeah, that's that's what I found interesting on, on the whole thing was I, I would consider you, in golf in general, a bit outside the box, and that is what the strength that you bring to the table. And while I thought it was a great idea for you to be hired, I also thought, yeah, the USJ probably won't do that. Like that, there's no reason for them to go outside the box in, in that regard, but, uh, but here we are, and I want to talk a little more about that as well, but... I, is it fair to say, you know, you, you worked for golf equipment companies in the past, you worked for Wilson, you worked for TaylorMade, but you also, you worked at Procter & Gamble, Bright Smile, Mission Hockey. Is it fair to say before your tenure with the LPGA, you weren't necessarily a golf purist? And I'm wondering what your relationship is like with the game of golf now after over a decade as the LPGA commissioner. Yeah, I think it's, I think that's fair to say. It's probably still fair to say that I'm not a golf purist. And when I'm, when I'm in a lot of these meetings and people start talking about where they played college golf, I'll tend, to, I'll tend to go get a Diet Coke at that point just to stay out of that conversation. You know, I was a football, baseball playing kid, you know, growing up, golf and football always conflicted, which probably was good news because I'm not sure I could have made the golf team, but I could always blame it on the fact that it was football season 
And yeah, I think from the beginning, I think I was interesting to the Wilsons and TaylorMades of the world because I came from this classic marketing background. And if you remember, it's weird to say now, but if you go back to the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, golf was evolving from essentially a sport where club manufacturer would walk in and talk to the club pro. That club pro would sit on the range and talk to his members, and then those members would buy that product from the pro shop. And it was turning into a marketing game. It was creating demand. You were walking into Dick's Sporting Goods and Nevada Bob's Golf and buying things online. And so it was really becoming a pretty significant marketing game as opposed to a relationship only game. And, you know, who knew who knew that pro from that club and that club guy was only going to carry three brands. How are you going to become one of those three brands? So I was intriguing because I was probably more of an outsider and knew the and knew how to market and create consumer demand more than I knew the insiders of the game of golf. And the good news for me is every place I've been, whether it's been Wilson, TaylorMade and even the LPGA and now certainly at the USGA, I'm surrounded by plenty of insiders who who understand that pipeline, who are who are connected in that pipeline, and also understands the pros and cons of that pipeline. I don't have to bring that to the table because one, I couldn't. Um, even now, all these times later, I don't think anybody would look at Mike Wan and go, "Yeah, he's he's pure golf," you know, from top to bottom. I'm uh, I, don't, I don't I don't know if I've ever been described that way, and I'm probably not going to be described that way even in the job I'm in. But I'm not ashamed, or quite frankly, afraid of the fact that I surround myself with a lot of of pure golf talent. I was going to say, the more I think about it, the more that almost the, the, the pure golf aspect might get in the way more than it uh, more than it does actually help in some of the some of the decisions, and some of the issues that come across your desk. But I think if, I think at the USGA, I think that the, the real question we had in my first selection committing is, you know, are, are you interested in maintaining the status quo? I mean, are you excited about how, you know, how the championships were in 1972 and how we ran the amateur in 19, you know, 1989 and, you know, uh, you know, exactly how we're doing. Uh, handicapping and agronomy and the green section. And if all those things are, we love it. We really don't want to get off the track we're on. Um, as I remember saying to that group, I'm not your guy, you know, because delivering more of the same and not challenging the status quo, I don't have it in me. So, I mean, I think what the EC or the board had to de decide is, do we want, you know, kind of transformationally, do we want somebody to come in and kind of change and challenge some of these things, including us, you know, make us uncomfortable. Or, or do we really like, you know, do we do we really want to keep things as is and just continue to kind of put the pedal down in the same direction we're already going? Because I said to them, I, I wouldn't know how to keep you going in the same direction, even if you asked me to. You know, it was it was a good moment because, you know, when you get to a certain age of your life, and I'm a 56. And, you know, to me, I'm only going to be excited if I'm in a place where I'm learning, surrounded by talented people and have a lot of room on the leash. And, um, you know, if you've if you've got a pretty significant leash law. I'm going to be miserable. You're going to be miserable. So, you know, let's not waste each other's time. And I think that's kind of what, what got us both there is they understood that. I mean, I know the game. Uh, I know the people that play the game. I'm not, I'm not such an outsider that it's going to take him two years to figure out, you know, who runs the PGA tour or what are the key players at the RNA. Those, you know, that's fallen off a log for me, but at the same time, I wasn't going to simply say, well, that's, that's how we did it in 1985. So that sounds great for 2022. What are the biggest issues on your desk to this point? And you could define that any way you'd like. What, what do you view as your, your biggest priorities here in your first year? Well, no matter where I'd go and no matter what business I'd walk into, I, I start, you know, I start with people and the talent because there's, you know, no CEO can fix anything on their own. If they think they can, they're just not going to be a CEO in the future. They'll just have to learn that the hard way. So so if you get the talent right on the inside, then the business is going to move faster than any CEO can envision. Um, I, when I think about talent and, and, and leading, I think about it both internally and externally. The other thing I, I really believe in is what I call lead in a huddle, which is we might have to make a final decision on something, but we need to be making that with the industry, not just for the industry. So 
it's I'm spending a lot of time outside the building, making sure I hear people's points of view on all the different aspects of how the USGA uh, touches the business. What's interesting for me, Chris, kind of coming in here, I guess I knew this, but when you see it firsthand, it's really quite different is the USGA is very comfortable. Quite frankly, they're, um, they're confident in, uh, in their ability to be a role player in the game. What I mean by that is, you know, in basketball, you talk about role player, you got to set a bunch of picks today. You got to, you got to play defense more today. Next week, I need to be a scorer. The USGA plays so many different roles in the game. Sometimes their role is just writing a check to somebody else's really important initiative. Could be first tee or drive chip or putter, um, you know, girls golf. You know, that's where they're needed on that project to get it to the next level. In some cases, it might be kind of behind the scenes, but the real engine, when you're talking about the gin system with world handicapping or, you know, agronomy with golf courses or world, world course ratings, those are important things to the game that quite frankly may not be as sexy, but it's an important role that the USGA plays to kind of keep the game rolling. Sometimes they got to be a cop, you know, in, in, the, in the game. And with the RNA, set standards and regulations, whether we're talking about amateur status or testing of equipment, et cetera. Um, and, you know, that's a pretty prominent role. Sometimes it's, you know, creating the best championships in the world. So amateurs at any age or pros at any age have a, have a panacea to shoot for in their career. So I find it's interesting how, um, you know, at the LPGA, generally, if we got involved, we were in the front of the parade, probably carrying the flag. Uh, at the USGA, sometimes they're in the parade, sometimes they're funding the parade, sometimes they're in the front of the parade. Um, and they're very comfortable in that role, realizing that if we're going to grow this game, we don't have to be the answer to every solution, but we have to find the solution and make sure the answer gets to the marketplace. And in some cases, we don't have to be visible. In some cases, we have to be the most visible. And in some cases, um, we have to band the industry together to get there. So this kind of dual, these dual roles, even on some of, some of the same topics, we can have a lot of different um, we can have a lot of different roles within the game, even in the same topic. And again, you know, Mike one sort of former commissioner, I'm used to just grabbing the flag and you, know, you guys follow me, here's where we're headed. And I'm realizing that the cool thing about the USGA is they're, um, they're a role player in the game because they're much more concerned about the end of the game than they are about the, about the stats book. And that's, um, that'll be a good one for me, uh, not only to learn, but to foster because it's, um, it's one of the things that makes the USGA special. It's one of the reasons why the game is, uh, is healthy. So uh, one of the things you said there about banding the industry together, it was leading me into my next topic, which I have a feeling you may know, know that this was going to come up at some point. But I'll ask this question to kind of kick off this topic. Is there a distance issue in golf? You know, I'm proud of you, Chris. You waited 16 minutes. So that's, um, you, you win the over-under bet, I would have said, within five. You know, I think the bottom, bottom line when it comes to distance is the question is, should we be concerned, you know, about the venues that support golfers uh, in the next 50 to 100 years? I don't think anybody wakes up today and worries about their golf course 50 or 100 years from now. That's our job. You know, that's our job. That's our job together with the RNA. Um, I don't think there's any way you could not have concerns about the highest level of the game and kind of what's happening to par fives and 480 yard par fours still being a driver and a wedge. And so if I think if you just turned a blind eye to that and say, well, it's exciting and everybody loves the long ball, which is true. And I, I fit into those categories as well. At the same time, you got to make sure that everybody loves the long ball doesn't turn into 50 years from now, your kids have dramatically fewer places to play because you just the, the game couldn't sustain the game. So I've said this many times, you know, I, I'm not here to preserve golf. I mean, that's not my, I mean, croquet is preserved and there's a reason why nobody wants to play it anymore because it's exactly what it was 200 years from now. And that's great. It's, it's really got protected. So I'm not afraid of changing the game. I love the modernization rules of the game that came out. I love the fact that championships keep growing and making a bigger social impact than what they did, you know, just 10 years ago. 
Um, so to me, you know, games either games either progress or, or they die. And, it, and so when you talk about progressing, one of the things you have to ask yourself is you have the role, Mike, um, as does Martin. And one of those roles is you got to be the traffic cop. What's the speed limit by which we can make sure that this game can survive for the next 50 years? I don't have the answer to that yet, but I'm also not going to shy away from that responsibility. Quick break to check in with our friends at Walker Trolley. I got to tell an absolutely true story. I was at Jack's Beach the other day, putting my trolley away. Some guy walked up to me as I was at the back of my car, said, what is that thing? You know, it's it's eye-popping, it's catching. I'm, I, I know it sounds like I'm lying, but this actually really did happen. He said, what's the name of that push cart company? I said, it's Walker Trolley. And I said, watch this. Did the cool little flip up where it goes right in the trunk. He asked me again what the name of it was. I said, it's Walker Trolley. And listen, the Walker Trolley Cape 1.5, number one premium push cart in the market. It's got a classic style, but also an ample use of modern technology. Polished aluminum frame, these waxed canvas and leather. It's a trolley that truly does stand out all over the golf course. This thing is something that people will notice. Not just an outstanding product, they pride themselves on their customer service that are always available by email or phone. And they're also offering a new sand and water bottle holder for free free with the purchase of a trolley. Just add both to your cart and the discount will be applied automatically. And if you're an existing trolley customer, you can get $10 off the sand and water bottle holder using code NLUFREE now through the end of August. So go to walkertrolleys.com today if you want to walk the course in style, bring your game to a new level. I know walking is huge in golf right now. I hope it continues that way and everyone needs a push cart to go along the way. It makes you want to walk. It gets You get a little exercise out of it. And again, this thing is going to turn some heads. So walkertrolleys.com. Let's get back to Mike Juan. Well, uh, I can ask this in a couple of ways, but I'll do it the cynic way, right? I could say, all right, I'm a, I'm, I'm a doubter of Mike Wan. You used to work for an equipment company here. Uh, I think we have a, a big distance issue in the game of golf. If I'm sitting in that chair, what, what makes you the right guy for this? I'm a little worried about having you in that position if, I'm, uh, if I could be cynic about it. Well, if you were if you were a cynic of Mike Wan, there's, a, you know, there's, there's, there's probably an online group you can join. They probably have jackets. <laughs> So, I mean, that's fine. I mean, if there, you can't, if you're worried about cynics in this job, then you, you shouldn't have taken the job. What I would say to you is I, I, you know, again, everybody, everybody believes what they believe, but what I would say to you is one of the things that makes the game of golf great. And I think every cynic and every fan out there has to think about this is the fact that this morning when I woke up 5,000 engineers around, around the world woke up to trying to make the game more fun, more playable, uh, more exciting for you. Um, nobody woke up this morning with the same idea for darts, you know, and they're not trying, you know, so nobody's spending hundreds of millions of dollars in R and D, um, to make other sports exciting. When I, when I see that box under the Christmas tree, that looks like a golf club that my wife wrapped up, I'm pumped up. I don't know if it's going to make me better or worse, but I'm excited about next season on the golf course. When we, when we say that there's a new golf tournament, whether it's on the LPGA or PGA tour, European tour, et cetera. Um, almost from the beginning, you can tell you that 30% of the advertising inventory is going to be bought by, by brands that are fully invested in the excitement of the game and the Titleist, Pings, PXGs, TaylorMades, Callaways. I think as the head of the USGA, I can't ignore that because I think if that goes away, um, we feel a lot more like tennis a lot faster, which is, you know, there isn't a ton of, of tennis ball technology or tennis net technology being invested from an R&D perspective because there's kind of no room to... To, to go there. So I got to figure out a way together with the RNA and my team here at the USGA that we protect the game for the next 50 or 100 years. And I don't think we're, I don't feel like, you know, we're under this onslaught tomorrow where every golfer on every golf course has obsoleted the bunkers on the left of 10. But I also think we can say if any golf course wants to host an elite high end level of, you know, kind of professional play, there's probably going to play that golf course, not in the way the designer intended it, which is okay. But then the question is, if you jump that forward 30 years, are we still okay? And, and finding those venues. 
but um, but I have zero desire in that answer being, you know what I did? I just threw a wet blanket over the future of innovation. Golf will never be, from equipment perspective, better than this line I just drew in the sand. All you engineers go home, R&D is not needed. That would be a great way to solve a problem by napalming as opposed to by actually figuring out a way that we can still have excitement. I think the end of this, the end of this run is we're going to do what we've done for you know 100 years at the USJ. We're going to find standards that we think um, keep us within the track. And at the same time, uh, provide a lot of opportunity for engineers to wake up tomorrow, getting creative in all other kind of areas um, to make the game exciting. I think I think the fact that this sport has so many partners, so many manufacturers invested in making it more fun, more exciting, and potentially even easier for the average golfer is one of the things that sets us apart from every other sport. You may not agree with that, but I can tell you of somebody who's lived on both sides of the track, I know that makes our game exciting. It makes it more televised. It makes it more interesting and it makes fans feel different about the game than they feel about other sports that are certainly hard to play and they simply walk away from. So I think the people that, you know, I'll sit next to on a plane and go, this is easy. Just make the ball 40 yards shorter and, you know, move on. Um, that's great. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I sat next to you, but, um, but I don't, I don't want to solve distance and kill the game. That makes a lot of sense. It sounds like, you know, you don't want to take away the thrill from the amateur golfers, but you sounds like you'd be in no uncertain uh, terms said, uh, you know, you'd be crazy not to think that there might be an issue at the highest level. So there is a word for that. Uh, I'm wondering uh, that word is bifurcation. And uh, if I'm taking those two answers and combining it, that's kind of where uh, I could potentially see things going. It's a stance I've, I've held for quite some time. Do you anticipate bifurcation being a serious option to curb any distance issues that may exist in golf? I think one of the things I thought when I walked into USJ is they already have the answer. You know, they're just waiting through a process of, of feedback and going back and forth. But that's not really true. I mean, it, I mean, I'd be honest, honestly say to you that this process of of working with the industry is is real. There's not, you know, there's not some there's not something hidden in the safe back in you know in room 403B. And then when a time comes, we'll just go break the glass and and un unveil it. We're you know we're building this together. Uh, with the RNA and with the feedback of the industry. I've said this many times, bifurcation doesn't scare me. I get why it scares others. I've been, I spent enough time in the manufacturing world to know there's there's more bifurcation already than we talk about, but but that's okay. But I also understand that, you know, the benefits of that make, again, make our game special and the fact that we all play by the same rules. And generally speaking, you can hit the same wedge that Phil hit at the PGA Championship, or you can get Dustin Johnson's driver, you know, kind of built to your spec versus his. Um, and I think if we can, address distance in a meaningful way, you know, for the future of the game, not, you know, not necessarily uh, in a way in which that doesn't require us to, you know, dive deep in bifurcation. I'd prefer it. Uh, if it's not possible, um, I'm not afraid of it. Um, but I also, but I understand the arguments against it. And, and so like I would say to you going into this, what I would say is it's certainly not off the table. Um, I hope we don't have to go there, but um, you know, that'll be a, that'll be a process to, to find out, find a solution that we really believe um, can work for everybody. And most importantly, believe at the end of it, when, whenever we finish whatever we're going to do in terms of the next stage on the distance front, the most important thing is I have to be able to walk off the stage, look at anybody in the face and say, I think the game will be just as healthy tomorrow as it was today. I think there'll be just as much excitement over the future. And I think that's an important part. I think if you simply, like I said, I mean, it's a, there's an easy way to put a candle out, dump a bucket, bucket of water on it. But um, But I'm not really sure that's the best way to make sure that uh, there's still a flame long term. And that's the thing that I have more appreciation for when it comes to the conversation that I probably had maybe four or five years ago is just how much the change in golf just represents evolution, right? And, you know, baseball analytics have changed the way baseball is played. Basketball analytics have changed the way basketball is played. 
and technology, uh, you know, not only analytics and technology, but analytics just at the highest level have exacerbated distance issue. And, and I, I'm just wondering how your view has shifted on this, if at all, since you took the job. What's something maybe you didn't know or give, give enough credence to or what, what stakeholder had you not really considered? I'm wondering if there's been any evolution. You know, I know you haven't been in the, in the seat too long, but uh, I wonder if there's anything you can relate to there. You know, the thing that's interesting to me is, you know, what I did when I first got here on, on you know, the topic of uh, on the topic of equipment standards is I went back and looked at the history of equipment standards. And it's funny, every time the USGA and the RNA announced some kind of uh, some kind of adjustment, there was always a sort of a caveat at the end that says, you know, that they reserve the you know, they reserve the right to make changes as, you know, as technology and and uh, and skill and accuracy change, so I think every time they've announced a regulation, there's always been a uh, there's always been a caveat that says this this won't be the last time we we revisit this. I think if you wanted to critique the RNA and the USGA and myself, you could critique the fact that maybe we've there's been a pretty big uh, break between our, our last time and now, uh, and so this is probably something we would probably have to keep a closer eye on going forward. But I don't, um, uh, but I don't. I don't think that anybody, when they said this, when they said something in 1986 or 2004 or 2008, believed that's it, we're done with this, and we'll never come back to this again. I think they've always looked at equipment standards and said this is the right decision at this day and time, and we'll relook at this, you know, on a regular basis. Last one, I got two questions related to distance, and I promise we will move on. One, I, I get this argument a lot. Um, people will say. Hey, why do I care how far, you know, I play the, I play the game at my local course. I play at 6,000 yards, whatever. Why do I care how far the tour pros hit it? What w what would you say to that? What do you believe that there is a trickle down effect at all? Even if there is, uh, if this distance issue is exacerbated at the highest level, how do you interpret the trickle down effect of that through the rest of the game? Uh, they're wrong. It, it, there is an absolute impact on the game. I'd listen. I was the LPJ commissioner for 12 years. I never met a golf course owner. Um, most people who own a golf course, I think about owning another one, but when they, you know, I've met a lot of guys that were building their golf course for the first time, not just in America, but all around the world. And, you know, the, the, one of the things they'll tell you at some point is that I'm building it, Mike, at 8,300 yards because I want to be able to host championships here. There's very few golf courses that wouldn't want to host a college event, a corn ferry event, an LPGA, a PGA tour, a European tour event, at some point, a high school, a high school golf event. You know, you want, you want your venue to be a championship venue. So if you don't think new designers are being asked to make sure that we create a set of tees at 8,500 yards, you're, you're not paying attention. You know, if you don't think that, if you don't think about what your own golf course has done in the last 10 or 15 years, if they had any money to do it, I'm sure that there are fairway bunkers in places that there wasn't before. I'm sure that there are tee boxes behind you. And the reality of it is, and you know this, Chris, we probably should be spending a lot more money as an industry on forward tee boxes than back tee boxes. I mean, there's a greater need in terms of volume for a tee box where somebody hits the ball 125 yards than there is for somebody who hits the ball 325 yards. But building a 125 tee doesn't lead you to, to hosting bigger things that might get your event on television or might get your golf course talked about all around the world, or you and I would be here talking about your golf course. So, and then when you have an 8,500 yard golf course, you, you've got to maintain it. You're going to add a few hundred thousand dollars a year in maintaining a golf course that's 2,000 yards longer in the world of, you know, in the world of stability, which I think is easy for us 
on the East Coast not to pay attention to, but where I came from in California and Arizona, watering is going to be is going to be the toughest is going to be the toughest kidney stone to pass for golf long term. All of those things are impacting golf courses, even if they're not impacting you on a golf course. So this is a great example of if you would say Mike Wan, single handicap golfer who plays golf every weekend, is there a distance problem? Not for me. Those bunkers are still in play. I hate them because I can hit every one of them. The guys I play with aren't obsoleting a golf course. But I know my golf course wants to host major championships. I've seen new tees and, and distance added, and um, and that matters. And that's okay. I mean, I'm excited that they want to do that. I mean, that's the part of the exciting part of golf is, you know, even golf courses want to think big and get excited about the future. But I think if 500 yards is no longer a par four in the not too distant future at the championship golf level, you know, we're going to run out of space. Not for us. We can all kind of live our life fat, dumb, and happy. We can we can live through global warming and, and not worry about it. Or you can say, you know, if we don't if we don't make changes, then our kids' kids probably have issues that we left them. I feel the same way in golf. Like I can I can finish this job and uh, not make any not make any of these decisions and keep you know keep fans happy with me. But I'm not sure I'd be delivering the mission of am I am I fully committed to leaving the game of golf better for my kids' kids? If that's the case, then you know some of these topics like this one I can't just turn the page. Yeah, and I think that's what some people struggle with is just understanding how that cost of the ball going far gets passed down to the user, you know, and, you know, that's passed down to your green fee, the extra maintenance that goes into running the business of golf. And, like, if you keep pulling on that string, I was kind of alarmed. I was out at a, a construction site of a new golf course here in Jacksonville, and the guy that was building it said, asked me, like, how many golf courses do you think are being built in the United States right now? And I think his answer was, like, eight or ten. And you compare that to 15 years ago, pre-financial crisis, how many golf courses were being built at the same time? Like, the, while golf is having experiencing an enormous boom and people getting out and playing it, the business of running golf courses has has come. I don't want to say come to a screeching halt in the last decade or so, but it has gotten affected to the point that a lot of people probably don't realize. And I hear so many people say, "Oh, we just need to build more accessible and affordable golf courses." And I don't think they can make it. It might be a long string connecting the two dots between distance, but there is a connection that gets all the way down to, you know, that granular of a level. I'm wondering if you have any reaction to any of that, what I just said. Yeah, I mean, you're you're 100 percent right. It's um, one. I think we're from a golf perspective. I think we're actually in a better space today than we were 10 or 15 years ago, meaning amount of golf demand for golf clubs available. You know, the interesting right now through the pandemic is, you know, that most golf clubs are are really full and they've been wanting to be really full for 25 years. So it's a good experience at a golf course where I think they went through a couple of lean decades of, you know, trying to get more players on on their golf course. So I hope we don't go through an over uh, build again. I mean, a lot of times, you know, these overbuilds come more about about selling homes than yeah. about golf courses. And then when the homes are sold, you know, nobody cared about the golf course. But these things do matter. Like I said, if you spend time like I do, I mean, I'm at a golf course at least once a week with all around the world. and everybody if they're not building a golf course which isn't the craze today but everybody's investing something in their golf course and i can promise you that one of the core elements of at any golf course that's at the high end and has the money is um is adding length adding tee boxes lower finding more space and if the if the future is x number of acres is needed for a golf course you certainly won't see a golf course in any really accessible diverse communities they're going to be way out you know in the burbs it's the only place where you could get the land that way and you're going to find less and less of them west because you can't afford to, to, to water them so like i said it was when i was the commissioner of the lpga i would think about things like distance or those kind of things and think 
you know, I'm fine. The LPGA is not flitting in the golf courses. We're playing from the blue tees. There's another set of tees behind every one of the golf courses, like somebody else's problem, which is true as the LPGA commissioner, somebody else's problem. But um, but I didn't wake up or walk into a board or, or read a mission every day when I walked in saying, you know, are we fully committed to the future of the game to make sure it's better for the next generation? I feel like, you know, if we don't take this serious, that's fine. And all of us will have a great golfing experience in our lifetime, but we're handing our kids, kids a game that's, that's tougher to, to, uh, to grow than today. And, you know, it's uh, it wouldn't take much on our part. You know, I feel like we've continued to, to provide a game that's better. And you made the comment before about other sports. I mean, you know, us making some changes, whether they're rule changes or equipment changes, that kind of stuff, uh, just makes us like every other growing sport. I mean, three-point shots in basketball and shot clocks and moving the field goals back in football. I mean, sports evolve. You know, uh, tennis ball has gotten faster or slower over the times to, you know, kind of keep the keep the game within the within its footprint. So we're not unique here in golf in terms of asking ourselves questions about how do we make sure the game is just as strong 50 years from now as it is today. I mean, we're, we're certainly not the only sport having that discussion on a daily basis. Right. Yeah, I think back to baseball changed its ball, I think, couple times in the last several years but it's just a different different animal when part of the marketing piece of this game is the differentiation between the golf balls so I think that I think that that puts a puts a bow on all that I think we've solved all the distance problems in the game of golf here <laughs> uh, moving on to championships a little bit here and I want to start with this uh, the USGA signed an enormous deal with Fox several years ago I, I would go as far to say it innovated golf on television uh, it brought us so much more Pro Tracer. They tried a lot of stuff. It brought us drones. Uh, it had limited commercial interruption. Uh, Fox got out of that deal for a variety of reasons. It's the only deal I've seen in golf on television that I think that was really, really great for the viewer, and maybe that's why Fox ended up getting out of it. But NBC took that over for a fraction of what it was, and 2021 U.S. Open was decidedly not limited commercial interruption. What can we expect from future U.S. Open telecasts? And I'm wondering what your view is just on on how the championships, uh, USJ championships, are presented on television. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think the I think the Fox, you know, Fox innovation pushed, you know, pushed other innovations in TV, and that's that's good. I think I think we'll see the same from NBCs and CBSs in the world in terms of because I think you know more and more television innovation is coming in sport and certainly coming in uh, coming in golf. I think the good news about the USGA is, you know, most of our championships are actually presented without uh, TV interruption, uh, thanks to Rolex and their investment in those investments. Can't really do that on the US Open relative to obviously the investment that NBC and so many others have made into that championship. I didn't get to see it on TV because I saw it there locally, but I've, I've got the telecast to, to rewatch. So I'll, I'll look at that with the same eyes in the question you just asked, but I don't have any concern about whether or not NBC and uh, and Golf Channel are committed to, you know, to innovative fan watching experience. I think the most important thing that's coming is uh, is just how many ways in which you're going to be able to watch championships. I mean, you know, I'm an old guy. So, you know, my 20 year old kids, um, you know, when I see them watching things on their phone that I figure they're just getting updates, but they're, you know, they're watching, you know, they're watching sports on their phone. They're getting prompts while they're watching another sport to say, Rom's putting on 17, you know, for a birdie to take the lead. And, you know, they'll yell up, hey, turn it over to NBC. So, I mean, there are um, the ways in which we can connect, not just in the U.S., but all over the world with our championships is pretty unique. The ways in which I think we can sort of get to know these players. One of the things I love about NBC and Golf Channel, which I liked at the LPGA, is they're pretty good storytellers on the individual because because of their Olympic experience, I think. I think it's sort of in their DNA. But, you know, the ability to tell the stories of, you know, these amateurs, whether they're amateurs, mid-ams, senior-ams, you know, uh, whether they're professional players that are reaching the peak of their game, I just really think they're 
they're good storytellers. Mega Gagne at the U.S. Women's Open. I think obviously she's an incredible player and had an incredible week, but I think NBC did a nice job of bringing her story to life. I think that's important for the game. If our championships are just championships and somebody raises the trophy, fine. But if we think of them more like Olympic moments where you get an opportunity to meet people and their journey, because almost everybody's, one of the things I've learned as the LPJ commissioners, their journeys are all different and we can sort of all relate to some part of their journey. It may not be, you know, some girls from Thailand and you think, well, I don't have anything in common with her. And then you actually get to know her and you realize, wow, I mean, she's, she's dealt with a lot of the same challenges either I did or my kids did, or, you know, her challenge with diet is the same as my son, or, you know, she lived in seven different schools before she got to high school. And I sort of did that to my kids. You start to connect with these athletes. And I think NBC does a great job of, of, of bringing these individual stories to life. And that's why I think, you know, it's, hard to watch one of these championships and not and not feel it emotionally as opposed to just celebrate a good golf outing. And I, I think I want I want to challenge you a little bit on this just because I I get have gotten great great benefit out of the US Women's Open being commercial free and the US amateur coverage and you can flip it on and you can watch golf and you don't know when you can get up to go to the bathroom. That's it's super super engaging. And I felt that uh, up until even through 2020, when NBC took over for the first time, I felt that same kind of the the importance of the presentation of the championship. And the Masters has has delivered this basically since the beginning of it being on television was how important their product was being presented. And if I'm looking at the the hours of coverage on, on NBC this past year were enormous, but it took they wanted you to go to Peacock in the morning and then Golf Channel and then NBC and then Peacock for the last hour. And it felt it felt, you know, for someone that took the took the contract over for thirty cents on the dollar or whatever it was, I was a little annoyed by it, honestly. And I'm just, if it made me like, I went from thinking, wow, the USGA has really cared and taken action on presenting its championships in a meaningful way for viewers, back to man, I'm feeling like I'm being sold again. And I'm just wondering what your perspective is on that, uh, on pre- on the presentation of of the product when it comes from the USGA. I, I, first off, I'm not going to change your opinion I mean, if that's what you felt. And, and I'll, I mean, I'll, I hear you. Um, what I'll tell you is I, I'd say three things that are, I think, fairly going to be are going to prove themselves to be out true. Number one is, you know, no, no group of people changes less easily, in my opinion, than golfers. I mean, they you know, just love, love their tradition, love the way it was last year. And why'd you change it this year? Even when you talk about Fox Innovation, I remember hearing all the people going, what's up all this Tracer stuff? And now you wouldn't <laughs> want to watch a major without tracer. So we, we don't change. Well, people thought that dropping from the knee was like, you know, was, was antichrist. What are we doing? Dropping from the knee. And now you look back and go dropping from the knee is pretty simple. You grab a ball, you bend over, you drop it from your knee. But in the moment of change, we don't do it well. I will tell you that I think in 2030, you'll have four different channels in which you can watch, you know, the U S U S open and you'll flip between them yourselves anyway. And flipping between them will be pretty commonplace because you will have done that for all kinds of other things. And maybe you just really want to watch uh, John Rahm all day and he's available on on that streaming offer as opposed to you want to watch the network where you're showing this. And so I think the whole idea of a lot of different ways to, to take in, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day of a championship is going to become commonplace. And I think five years now, you're going to look back and go, I can't believe I thought that was challenging because now I wouldn't want to live without all the different ways in which I can stay engaged in a championship as opposed to the TV window is from three to seven. And that's our window. And after that, we move on to such and such. I think these these windows are going to give us an opportunity to say, if you're if you're a crazy fan, we're going to give you crazy different ways in which, you know, in which to follow us. I think those are just that's just a, a given in the future. And like I said, I think people will kind of get will kind of view those as as commonplace. I think the um, when I think about the U.S. Open returning to the NBC and Golf Channel, 
it was so much about leading into it and afterwards that that was different, I think, than the Fox experience. I mean, we watched the longest day in golf. We saw what it's really like to be in the U.S. Open. I mean, there's a lot of things that call themselves open, but nothing's as open as the U.S. Open. And getting into it, even if you're a tour player, is the it's the toughest field to get in. Uh, let alone the toughest golf course to play at that time. So watching the whole process of getting to qualification, you never saw that before NBC came back. Interviewing these guys the minute they actually made their last putt, find out who they are, where they're from, and how they just got into the open. Those things were available the week before. We ran a three-part series about the about setting up USJ's tracks, setting up Tory, and about you know Xander returning to his home was all kind of built into, again, not things that you would see from another network that was probably focused on other sports right up until it was time to televise the US Open. So I think the surrounding piece, the storytelling piece makes it significantly different. And I think it might be easy for you to forget about those things because you're thinking about the, the four hours you watched on Sunday. But but I really believe that what we had there, we had, a, we had an event and we had a, a lead in and a lead out of that event that quite frankly wasn't available prior to the return to Golf Channel NBC. doesn't mean it's not doable. It just means that, you know, when, when golf is what you do with the Golf Channel and NBC had so many different options in which to bring it to you, they're able to kind of tell these stories. I watched the Olympics in the last few weeks and I watched it in six different channels. It, uh, it wasn't normal, but I realized as I was doing it, it will be the normal. If I wanted to watch volleyball, I could go find volleyball. What needs to find it? But I could go find it. That's so much better for the fan than the old days of our television window is from three to six. We'll show you what we want to show you from three to six. And that's the deal. Take it or leave it. 20 year olds don't play that game anymore. And I think the cool news about golf is we're going to start to be able to bring not only majors, but championships in general, that kind of freedom, that kind of uh, variance, that kind of pick what you want to watch. As, I get it. As a, as a standard golf watcher, you know, you saw a difference there. But I don't think that'll be different in five years. I think it'll be re- it'll be a requirement. On the men's championship side, do you feel like there is work to be done regarding the relationship between the USGA and, and top men's pros? Do you feel like there's been improvement in recent years? And what what kind of sense do you get as you come into the job? I expect it to be more more challenged uh, because I think, you know, I, I would say this in sports, you, you generally remember what happened three or five or 10 years ago. And, you know, if you you, know, you and I've had this conversation before, but you know, when I when I first started at the LPGA, if you would have asked me about the NBA, I would have talked about practice. We're talking about practice and choking coaches, and that wasn't true. That wasn't LeBron. That wasn't KD. But I was, or in baseball, I was thinking about you know corked bats and Sammy Sosa, and and that wasn't true either. That wasn't the, the current game. And I think you know I kind of walked in and sort of my my stereotype of USGA and maybe men's pros was was back to those moments. But I didn't feel that anyway. I mean, I talked to quite a few pros, you know, agents. Um, because I don't really know the men's side of the game. At least I don't know the people. Um, I, I know the people who run that side of the game, but I don't really know the athletes and their agents and their caddies. So I probably spent more time just on the range introducing myself and Tori than usual. On the women's side, I, I do know most of those players and I do know most of those journeys. So I wanted to kind of learn some of the, you know, some of the journeys to get there. But at the end of the day, I think one of the things that is pretty clear to me is if you, if you say to yourself, we're going to create the toughest test in golf uh, at least once a year, and try to identify who the best golfer is and the toughest, you know, both physical and mental challenge. Um, it's going to be difficult to be everybody's best friend. But I do think, um, as Jason Gore said to me when I when I first met him, you know, we were we were actually on, hitting balls on a range. He said, as tour players, we can handle whatever you're going to throw at us, um, and we can we understand that sometimes the course will get the better of us, vice versa. We just want you to be authentic, you know, just take a, take a great golf course make it tough and get out of the way. That's something I can support. I mean, get a, pick a golf course, make it tough and get out of the way. And, you know, to me, at the end of the day, we have to get over at the USGA, a minus 12 winning an open win 
the wind doesn't blow or the rain doesn't shine or some guy plays completely out of his mind. And I think uh, maybe in the past, we've worried more about the number than, uh, than putting on an authentic test. And so I can handle the 5 million people that want to send me an email someday if 14 under wins the US Open. As long as we believe we created a great golf course, we created the toughest test and we got out of the way. So, um, you know, it's, I, I think it's when you feel, oh no, somebody's at nine under, how do we get them back to four under is when you can kind of get off kilter. And, and that'll be my challenges because all these athletes really want is you, you give me, you know, you, you set it up, you give me the venue. And then, and then for those four days, it's my show after that. And that's, uh, I think that's fair. I don't think anybody at the Super Bowl ever gathered at halftime and said 31 to 28, that's too high. How do we, how do we slow down the scoring? I mean, I think once you, once you get, the, once those athletes have made it to that level, and you've set up the venue, then whatever happens inside the ropes happens inside the ropes, and you're just gonna have to applaud applaud that either way. I think I learned that probably the hard way a few times at the LPGA, but once you learn that, um, you never you never forget it. Yeah, that's the that's the thing I think a lot of people probably don't realize if is if with how optimized golf is to this day, with how you know how far these guys hit it and the skill they have with the spin. If you don't get conditions and you still are trying to make that score a low score or a higher score, I guess lower in relation to par. You, you have to totally manipulate a golf course to an unhealthy degree. And so that's, yeah, that's something the RNA has always gotten credit for is saying, yeah, you know, if the wind didn't blow, scores got low. Or the wind blows and scores are over par. So um, I think that, yeah. I've played, I've played the ocean course at Kiwa enough to know that it's not as easy as they made it look yes, at the PGA. Exactly. But the wind wasn't blowing. The weather was perfect. And so I get it. It happens. I've never played Kiwa uh, or the ocean club at that time when it feels like that. I mean, I've, um, you know, I watched the women play Carnoustie. Uh, this weekend. And I mean, it's the only time I played Carnoustie, which is seven or eight times, it was full scale Carnasty where you're, you're dealing with sideways rain and wind. And Hey, when that doesn't happen, uh, you know, the, the golf course is a few, if not a lot of strokes uh, different. And I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's our job or our mission to, to solve that. I think let's, let's give them the toughest test we think we can give them in golf. And after that, it's their show, not ours. You've done a lot for women's golf in the last decade in, in your role as as commissioner. What's something that was, you know, out of your purview as LPGA Tour commissioner that might be, you know, maybe falling more under your umbrella in your, in your new role that's uh, possibly on your agenda in your new job? Uh, well, the thing that's, that spikes to mind is the uh, the impact majors can have on the rest of women's golf. I'm, Martin knows me well. I mean, I've been I've been in Martin's ear for years talking about the purse of the, at the AIG Women's Open. And, uh, you know, Peter, who's the head of AIG, as the first guy I called when I when Martin shot me a note about their announcement of their purse increase just to say thanks. I, I know that didn't happen in weeks. That happened in years. We've been in those meetings for a long time. And I've talked about the importance of what the majors in tennis meant to women's uh, compensation and equality in the game. You know, not every tennis event. Uh, in men's and women's pays the same. In fact, 90% of them don't, but four do. And four really uh, four really have changed the perception of how women probably feel about the game of tennis. So I feel that responsibility. I felt it before I got here. I've said this many times that in my mind, the USGA always sort of led women's golf in the US Women's Open, not just being the oldest and most significant tournament, but pushed us in terms of golf courses and purses and television coverage. And um, I, I, will, I will promise you I'll own that responsibility here at the USGA that I believe I have a role and quite frankly, a responsibility to continue to push uh, the game for the, for the women's side, not just in compensation, which is the easy one to talk about, um, but in all the other ways in which uh, the women are treated if they make it to the absolute pinnacle of the sport. In the guys game, you can talk about a lot of different majors. And, but for me, from, the, you know, from before I was commissioner and while I was commissioner, 
the U.S. Women's Open was the pinnacle of our sport. If they could only win one major in their life, it was going to be this one. It's the one that doesn't have a pro-am. It's the one that hands you a Lexus set of keys when you walk off the, the plane. It's the one that started playing incredible venues before the rest did. But I but I really believe the fact that they did forced others to to do the same. So I think we've got to continue to be the um, uh, continue to be at least one of, if not the one that pushes the envelope. I, I think in women's game, we're the one. And uh, we better act like the one, you know, the, the one that really matters, the one they're talking about when they're seven putting and some girls golf outing about this is to win the U.S. Women's Open. And so I believe we have a responsibility to make sure the one continues to push the, you know, to push the water level for all the rest. Yeah, I think there's such a such a great opportunity for the women's game for for venue to visit venues, right? That maybe as we talk about distance, get get kind of uh, aged out of being able to host the biggest men's events, yet it fits so perfectly into the profile and the shot shapes and the distance and the spin profiles of uh, of the LPGA, the top women players. So watching them play Olympic was really exciting. Uh, Country Club of Charleston a couple years ago was just that was peak golf for me. Watching that, that was that was pretty ideal. So I, I'm I'm curious how you view how you view the importance. Uh, of venues and what the perspective you have in your role currently versus you know how somebody sitting on the couch might think of a venue what what you're looking for when it comes to you know the the different playing profiles top men top women amateurs whatnot um and and uh i'm not sure exactly what my question is there other than kind of what 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 are the what are the future plans for venues and what do they look like yeah it's funny you know we announced this long-term partnership with oakmont marion in the state of pennsylvania and I got a bunch of emails from my friends about, you know, U.S. Opens and amateurs at those two. And I would note back saying, I'm, I'm glad you're excited, but my guess is there's a million more women going Marion. A couple of times, U.S. Open, you know, Oakmont, because those are those are venues that haven't been a given on the women's side. What I would tell you about venues is, you know, I've, I've spent enough time around athletes uh, at the at the professional golf level to know that they not just they don't just want to win a U.S. Amateur or a Women's Amateur or U.S. Open, Women's Open. Um, but it matters to them where they win it. I mean, that's part of the allure of making it to the absolute best. So, you know, uh, I remember when the USGA announced that we were going to play a U.S. Women's Open at Pebble Beach. It came on a day, I think it was like on a Tuesday, and I was in Texas, and I walked out to the putting green, and everybody was talking. I remember Kari Webb goes, seriously, 2023? I got to play until 2023? <laughs> like, you know, it changed the way people even thought about winding down their career because because not, I'm not going to miss Pebble. If I can get into Pebble, I'm going to Pebble. That's... um. I think that's important to the game. I don't think uh, I don't think fans realize how much the athletes get excited about these venues too. I mean, there's certain venues if you say to a, you know, to a male or a female professional golfer, Shinnecock, Wingfoot, Oakmont, in their mind, those are ultimate tests of the game. And and, and they all would say to you, we could probably play an open there tomorrow. And they're probably right. These courses are hard by their very nature. They're impressive by their very nature. And whether you shoot 79 or 69 you know you've been tested and then um, so i do feel some responsibility to make sure on you know that the the usga continues to kind of showcase some other venues around the us and and kind of opens the doors for some other venues but at the same time at my core uh what i believe is where you win your your usga championships matter and um and picking places that uh, that can deliver on those big moments i mean one thing that's clear traveling around the country this summer and going to all of our different championships, not just the big ones, but the ones that maybe are less televised or talked about, these are the greatest golf moments of their life. And, and, and I can't tell many people would look at me and say, I gotta tell you, Mike, I, I, my whole life, I've tried to get into this event. You know, I, I tried to qualify for such and such seven times. I've, you know, when I was 22 is the first time I tried to, I mean, these are, these are their dream. 
I've said this inside the building when you know when you're when you're holding somebody's dream, you're holding a pretty significant responsibility. So there, you know, it's our job to make sure the dream fits the reality when they walk onto that venue for the first time. That means where you play matters, and it means our choices are our choices of where are certainly as important as what the trophy looks like, what the TV profile, what the purse is. I mean, the the wear is an important part of the mix. Well, I can personally attest on the the lower amateur level that, yes, the venues that get chosen for that dictate how badly I want to qualify for them or how, <laughs> how hard I'm going to try or, or pursue that goal. So I can, I can sympathize with that. We'll get you out of here on this. What's, what's a perk of the USGA job that you, maybe you didn't quite realize you might have? Uh, well, I, I mean, I was, I was given a website and told to, uh, design my Lexus. That was a pretty solid perk. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you really, I mean, I really started designing. I looked out at my assistant and I said, is there a price limit I should stand there? Cause now I'm starting to feel kind of greedy and, um, which I, which I did, but uh, maybe I didn't. Another perk is probably on my first week. I got, I don't know, five or six, um, welcome to our club, uh, memberships, you know, which is, uh, all clubs that I don't think would have even, uh, would have even let me in if I'd gone through the normal process before I became the head of the USGA. I think the, the best perk is if you're a guy who loves the game, I mean, as you and I have talked, I may not be an insider, but I don't know that you'll meet somebody who loves golf uh, more than Mike Juan. There's plenty of people who, who like it as much, but, um, but this game matters to me. It matters that my kids care about it. It matters that my parents introduced me to it. It's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's personal to me. It's been personal since, you know, since the day I left Procter and Gamble to pursue a job in, in sports. I spend my time around people that really that really have that same love of the game. I mean, uh, a love that's almost uh, abnormal. You know, it's it's so abnormal that when you tell your wife you're going to take 2021 off and the one thing you need is a break from golf and you got to stop traveling. I just need to get away from it all. And somebody calls you on a Tuesday night and by two Tuesdays later, you just took a job with the United States Golf Association. That that's an abnormal love of the game. And, and I'm surrounded by that every day, both inside the building and out, even even walking down a you know down a corridor of an airport with masks on, when somebody comes over to you and says, "Hey, you're that guy from the USGA, right?" and they start telling you the story about when they were eight and their you know their grandfather first put a club in their hand, it's um, it's pretty cool. Like I don't know another sport that's like that. To me, when I was in the hockey business, Canadians talk about hockey the way Americans talk about golf, and you know it's part of the culture. It's part of your growing up experience. It's it molded you in terms of who you are. That those stories happen for me 10, 15 times a day. So I kind of feel like, you know, I, I just kind of feel like I'm home, you know, and I, I did, it took me a while to feel at home at the, at the LPGA for a lot of reasons. One, I didn't know anything about that business. You know, 90% of every meeting was women. So I was trying to make sure that I wasn't like an idiot, you know, just the, the, the stupid guy in the room. Um, I was surrounded by athletes that were much more talented than me and whatever. I mean, every LPGA athlete could have been an Olympic athlete in three other sports. So I just try not to embarrass myself at most pro-ams. But I got to a point where I was pretty comfortable. At the USGA, I felt like I got comfortable much quicker for whatever reason, but mostly just because I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that are just as lunatic crazy of this game as I am and uh, and feel a need to to give back. I mean, for a game that's meant this much to me, I feel like the least I can do is spend some of my life working um, – working to make sure it's it's this cool for my kids kids and their kids and not just their boys but their girls and you know for people all over the world i feel like i feel like we owe that to them well we'll get you out of here on that thanks so much for your time mike and and uh all of your contributions to this podcast over the years but i must say i reserve the right to still be critical of you despite your friendliness towards our podcast and your, <laughs> in your new role at, at the usga uh just wanted to just wanted to disclose that as as we wrap up here but thanks a ton for for your time and joining us and looking forward to doing this again in the future i reserve the right to be critical of you chris but thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> cheers thanks mike be the right club. Be the right club today. 
Donnie. That's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect.